Well, good morning. On this first Lord's Day of 2024, it is a special joy to be here and to have the privilege of, of preaching the, the first sermon of the year in this church. So I want to thank Pastor Jim for affording me that wonderful opportunity and especially the, the wonderful time that uh, I had with the men over the last several days. I'm really thankful for that, thankful for, for Greg and, and his planning of that and, and uh, the invitation to, to spend some time in the snow and away from uh, California, away from the Los Angeles area, Los Angeles County. It's, it's really good to be here. And as well, as, as Jim mentioned, I am the father to Alicia, uh, and uh, she sends her greetings and always has very, very warm memories of the time that she spent here and, and very thankful for, uh, for that time that she was able to spend a year and a half ago, I guess it is now already. So uh, uh, what, what a wonderful joy it is to be with you and to, to have this time in the Word. And in fact, uh, as we think of the new year, uh, one of the things that everyone does, or most people do anyway, is think a little bit about the year that has passed and the year to come. It's a an important time in our lives as we change calendars out, we get rid of the old ones and put up the new ones, and, and we, we review and evaluate and plan, and, and it isn't unusual that when we close out a year and think of the year ahead and reflect, that it's not unusual to look back with some level of disappointment. Uh, we always set goals that seem to be, in the end, unachievable or we're disappointed in the success that we may have planned for and look back and realize we have to kind of start over again in a new year and try to do the things that we planned to do but didn't accomplish. And that's not just in the broader world of just personal care and so on and so forth. That relates as well to ministry involvement. We can look back over a year of involvement in different kinds of ministries and wonder where that all led. Where's the fruit? And disappointment is actually quite common in the start of a new year. Disappointment over failures in ministry, disappointment over the lack of fruit. And this isn't just for, for us, kind of the, the regular hoi polloi in, in the church. This is also something that has marked some of the great ministers in the history of the church. William Carey, uh, who is often considered to be the father of modern missions, that first missionary back in the late 1700s who went out at a time when churches weren't sending out missionaries, went to the country of India. He arrived there in 1793, and after six years, six years of very strenuous ministry, he spent a time of reflection, and, and after those six years of ministry, there wasn't one convert among the Indian people. Six years of learning the language, six years of translating the Bible, six years of publishing tracts in the language and distributing them, six years of very, very dedicated labor, Six years of preaching the gospel, of making contacts, of establishing relationships, of visiting and traveling and pouring his life into ministry. Six years and not a single native convert. 
And to him, at that point in time, discouragement was a real temptation. And in one of the personal letters that he sends back to the mission agency or the society, the mission society that he had helped establish in the beginning of the 1790s, he wrote this letter back to one of the members of that society, and he said this, he said, I have almost grown callous and am tempted to preach as if their hearts were impenetrable. But this dishonors the grace and power of God who has promised to be with his ministers to the end, and it destroys all energy and makes preaching stupidly formal. Now, few in church history have attempted what what William Carey did, and so if a man with such tenacity of faith, with, with such levels of sacrifice, if a man like him was prone to discouragement, then certainly how much more are we prone to discouragement when we we who are more limited and simple and unnoticeable, when we look back on a year of ministry and, and wonder where the fruit is, where is the result, where is the, the reward to my labor of a year, and it tends, at the beginning of a new year, it tends to lead us toward a passiveness, toward either at the most just maintaining the status quo or perhaps even pulling back because we ask ourselves the question, what difference does it make? Well, there's a text of Scripture that answers that question really well, and I think it's a, a good text of Scripture to begin a new year with and, and to consider how we are to live our lives in the year ahead, and that text is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at just one verse it's the final verse to this very, very significant chapter, verse 58. We'll spend all of our time in this one verse. We're going to unpack all its components because here in this text we find very potent motivation for a new season of service. And my hope is that as we look into this text and see all that it has to offer, that this will provide the motivation for you at this first Lord's Day of the year to plan to do more, to, to, to devote yourselves to new levels of involvement in light of the truth that this text has. It has encouragement for us in moments of discouragement, and it, it has motivation for us as we are open to considering, what must I do now? And in this text, we're going to note five observations that motivate us, five potent motivations for us for a new season of service. And these are the five observations we'll make from this important text. First of all, we're going to notice a broad appeal, a broad appeal. Secondly, we'll see a clear command. Thirdly, a generous manner. Fourth, a rational motivation. And fifth, a sure foundation. So let's look at the first of these. The broad appeal. The broad appeal. The Apostle Paul says, if you look at the text, he says, he he addresses the Corinthians this way. He says, my beloved brethren. And and let's read the text and, and see all that's there. He says this, he says, therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your 
Labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, when you see that address, that appeal, at the beginning of verse 58, you might think that that appeal, along with the contents of this, this, this exhortation, this text, is toward pastors. Paul is addressing pastors, the elders of the church in Corinth, but that's not what that title or that address, my beloved brothers, communicates. In those days, the address brothers, just in general, referred to the entire church, to brothers and sisters, not just to the leadership. When Paul would address the leaders, he would say so, or it would be very clear in the context that he is addressing the the leadership of the church, but that's not in the context here. And instead, we are to interpret that address brethren or brothers as referring to brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is not seeking here to, to give a promise only to those who are formally involved in ministry. Instead, this is a, a broad appeal, and it's important to, to understand that appeal in light of what Paul has already stated in the preceding contents of this letter, showing that ministry in the church, the work of the Lord, is not just for a select few, but it's for everyone. We could go back to chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that great chapter that, that explains that every person in the church is, is likened to a member of a body, a body part, and all of them are necessary. All of them are needed. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7, to each one, speaking of, of, a, of, a, of a true church, eat to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each one. A few verses later in verse 12, Paul says this. He says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ speaking there of of the fact that each person, each member of the congregation, each true believer in that local expression of the body of Christ, each, each one has a part to play. And so Paul is, is drawing back to, to 1 Corinthians 12 and the truths there. He's bringing them in. And so this exhortation, this encouragement regarding ministry is not just to pastors. In fact, if you look a little closely at the, the address here, my beloved brothers, there is something more to note here. Now prior to this, Paul has addressed the church some 20 times using the simple address of brothers. He's just simply saying brothers. Even in this chapter, if you look at chapter 15, verse 1, he says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaim to you is good news. He says the same thing in verse 31. I affirm, brothers, by the boasting in which uh, in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. He says, even in verse 50, in the near context, he says, Now I say this, brothers. So he's addressed them many times as brothers. He addresses them with other titles in the letter. He calls them, for example, beloved children in chapter 4, verse 14. And that's a very interesting address because he's in the middle of chastising them for their immaturity. And he calls them beloved children. 
He calls them beloved again in chapter 10, verse 14, when he admonishes them to keep themselves away from any taint of idolatry. But this is the only time in the letter where he calls them my beloved brethren. He doesn't call them children. He's not in a, in a, in a context of admonishment. He puts them as equals, and he uses the most endearing terminology to join together with them to express this commonality that we are part of one family, and he uses this affectionate form in order to encourage them. And this is important. As he's going to exhort them to to greater ministry, he is going to use encouragement rather than condemnation. He's going to compel them to greater service by means of attraction rather than by means of chastisement. He understands that the most powerful motivation that we have really is encouragement. And that's what Paul does here. He makes this broad appeal, and he's indicating to the Corinthians that the contents of what he's about to say apply to everyone. The promise, the the guarantee that he's going to give is for everyone who belongs to the body of Christ. This is a broad appeal. Secondly, there is a clear command. A clear command. And here is the heart of the sentence. He says it in just a few words. He says, be steadfast, immovable. Be steadfast, immovable. Now, that, word, that, that command, that imperative to be, is actually probably better translated as to become. Become steadfast and immovable. It indicates that at this very point, which Paul is addressing in the letter, the Corinthians were not where they needed to be. And that's why this speaks so well to us, because as we examine our lives at the end of a year, at the beginning of another, often we find ourselves where we really ought not to be. And so Paul's word is become steadfast and immovable. There is something that the Corinthians had to work on here. As one commentator states, Paul sets before his readers a state from which they were as yet all too far, and he he urges them to continue in it. And it seems like for some reason, and when we read the rest of the book, it becomes much clearer, but the Corinthians were not stable. They were not immovable. They were bending here and there. They were all too dependent on their circumstances, all too affected by their feelings and what was going on in their lives, that they lacked the tenacity and intentionality and stability that they needed in this particular circumstance. And Paul takes two two terms here, two adjectives, which come from the the realm of engineering. And especially if you know anything about the, the Romans of this time, the Roman Empire, the Romans were builders. And so even to this day, there are a lot of buildings from the Roman period that remain. And because the Romans loved building, and everyone in that society knew that, and so Paul could easily use analogies from engineering and architecture to help press the point. 
And that's what he does. There's two adjectives here that really come from that world of construction. He says, first of all, be or become steadfast. Steadfast. Now, it is a rare word. It means to be firmly or solidly in place, to be fixed, to be fixed or settled. A related word to this word that we have in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is found in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, where Paul calls the church the pillar and support of the truth, the support, the foundation. The idea is it's that which forms or provides a firm foundation for something else. And Paul says to the Corinthians, he says to us as believers, become steadfast, firmly in place, become like a foundation stone. When you look at the, the buildings of the Roman period, they knew how to lay foundation stones. They would dig deep, They would set piles and put massive slabs of granite in place that even to this day after earthquakes still remain. Paul says become like that. Become like a pile driven into the ground that no one can afterward remove. Secondly, he says be immovable. Be steadfast and be immovable or become immovable. And this is a synonym to the first word, but it has a little bit of a different connotation in the realm of construction. Here the idea of immovable means not given to shift, not given to change, not given to movement. The idea here is is of of a column, a pillar, that is actually set upon the foundation. And because the foundation is solid, now you have this column that rises up into the air and the wind doesn't blow it, the earthquake doesn't move it, it is solid, it is immovable. And there are some places where you can go and the the Roman Empire, the former Roman Empire today, some places in Turkey and in, in Greece where you can still see columns in place from 2,000 years ago. They haven't moved. And Paul is pointing to that. John Piper describes it this way. He says this, being immovable means we don't get knocked over by sudden blows. Keep your balance. Stand strong and unshaken when the rains come down and the floods come up and the winds blow and beat against your house. Be like a boulder that can't get washed away, be like a tree that can't be blown down. That's what Paul is saying here. It's the picture here with these two adjectives of complete stability, both in terms of foundation and structure. And Paul, as he brings this chapter to a close, he is saying to the Corinthians, listen Corinthians, we can't be fickle. We can't shift and, and waver. We, we, we're not given the, the freedom to doubt and, and to wonder whether there's any truth, any, any immovable truth that's here. No, we must be firmly in place. That's critical for the Christian life. Now, the, the big question is, in what? In, in what area must we become steadfast and immovable? Now, Paul doesn't specifically state it here, but it's in the context of this chapter. When Paul says become steadfast and immovable, he's speaking of 
the context of gospel truth. And this final verse of the chapter, in many ways, serves as the completion to the very first verse of the chapter, or or the very first two verses. Paul essentially sets these two important bookends to everything that comes in between. And if you look at chapter 15, verses 1 to 2, it reads this. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So Paul began this important section in the, the second last chapter of the letter with a, an emphasis on, on the gospel and holding to the gospel. And now by the time he ends this particular section in the letter, he's drawing us back to that content, the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, Corinthians, become immovable, become steadfast in this gospel. And this is important for us when we consider gospel ministry. Because as we encounter hardship, even as William Carey described, it becomes easy to doubt. We begin to wonder whether this is the the truth that surpasses all other truths. We begin to wonder whether it's worth it. We begin to wonder whether maybe with time, that old the story of the old rugged cross maybe needs to be adapted to a new era. We begin to wonder whether this book has the sufficient message for today. And Paul says to the Corinthians, and he says to us, no, in that same gospel that I delivered to you, you become steadfast and immovable. And if there's one place where we become particularly vulnerable to compromise, it's here. When we preach this message, we, we, we speak this message, we share this message, and people don't accept it, they reject it, they ridicule us, we begin to wonder whether compromise is acceptable. Paul says, no. Continue on. Don't burn out. Don't give up. Don't change the message. Become steadfast, and immovable. So we've seen the broad appeal, we've seen the clear command. Now let's notice the generous manner. The generous manner. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. And then you have this phrase that speaks of a manner. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. The key word here is the word abounding. It explains just how we are to go about being steadfast and immovable. The the, the specific definition of the term means to be in abundance. To have more and to showcase more than enough. It has the idea of excess of, of overflow, of surplus, of abundance. It, it pictures something where there is more than what is needed and so it overflows on all sides. It really is another engineering metaphor here because it pictures what was so important in those days. It pictures a fountain. And when you go to old, the remains of old Greco-Roman cities, the 
centerpiece of construction was always some kind of fountain. The fountains were so important because in that part of the world, they didn't get a lot of rain. They had to bring water in. And if there was anything that was refreshing, it was that fountain. And it, for it to be refreshing, it had to spill over. And so the, the Romans had amazing ways to build these fountains using gravity and water movement without pumps that we have today to create fountains that would have this the sound of overflowing Water, always showing abundance, that the bowl never can contain all the water that's there. And Paul draws that analogy and he says, This is how you remain steadfast and immovable by always abounding in the work of the Lord, always having a surplus. That's how you do it. Never just planning to to just barely reach the end or just barely have enough. Instead, Paul is saying you need to have more than what's needed. He's expressed this same context or, or concept using the same word back in chapter 14, verse 12. He says to the Corinthians, he says, Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Now, this is a paradox, isn't it? On the one hand, it's, it's, it's fascinating here to see how Paul is, is communicating this truth. He says, on the one hand, you're to be static in your posture, steadfast, immovable. But at the same time, you're to be flowing in your production, always moving. And notice here the sphere in which this is to take place. As he speaks of this generous manner, he says this Abundance is to be shown in the work of the Lord. In the work of the Lord. This is where the the surplus is to be manifested. In the work of the Lord. That word work is a very broad word. It encompasses so much. It speaks of activity, of deeds, of actions, and it's connected to the Lord. It has the Lord, the Lord Jesus, as the focus. It has the Lord Jesus as the motivation. It has the Lord Jesus as the intention. But it is activity, it is deeds, it is actions. We could summarize this work of the Lord as the Great Commission. The making of disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And this emphasis, this work on the Lord in, in the theology of Paul is not just on, on some kind of rituals, just do things in some kind of a ritualistic manner. No, whenever Paul talks about the work of the Lord, the focus is on people. It's on people. And he says, for example, back in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1, he says, are you, Corinthians, are you not my work in the Lord? Paul's focus is on people, and so this abundance, this surplus, is to be people-oriented. It's all about people. It it can take so many different forms. Paul has already addressed that back in chapter 12 in particular, that the members of the body have different functions. It's not monolithic. It's not just all the same thing. That every member of the body will have something to contribute to the good of the church. Everything from teaching to hosting, through hospitality, through encouraging, exhorting, giving, serving, anything that helps contribute to the mission of the church. 
And how often is this to take place as part of this generous manner? Notice, again, look back at the middle of, of, this, of this verse. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always. It describes a, a pattern of life, a consistent, regular pattern. Not periodically, not occasionally. It's not supposed to be something like vacation time, which you take every so often. But this is to be our way of life. Something we're always, in some way, thinking about and orienting our, our life schedules around. Always. In fact, it's interesting how, in the original Greek, how the, the Apostle Paul expresses this. Now, in our English translations, we put the word always at the front of this clause. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And that's the normal way, even in the Greek, to express it. But Paul actually puts the word always at the very end of the, the clause to emphasize it. So it would read like this, abounding in the work of the Lord always. So as he drew that thought to a close, he wanted their attention, their remembrance to be particularly on the always. Always. We could say this, that... In the context of the Lord's ministry, this is the place where it's good to be liberal. This is the place where stinginess, where frugality is, is just not germane to what the Lord has planned. Be liberal. Abound in this work. So we've seen the broad appeal, the clear command. We just looked at the generous manner. Let's look at the fourth observation here, and it's this, a rational motivation. A rational motivation. And it's the final clause of this sentence. The, the Apostle Paul says this, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, it's interesting here that Paul assumes that the Corinthians already know something. He's not going to go and explain this to them. He's going to simply uh, indicate that he knows that they know. The, the idea here is, in fact, it's a perfective tense of a verb, which means the idea that they've already come to know. You could translate it this way, having come to know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The Corinthians already had the truth. The Corinthians already had the information. They were not ignorant. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, but it's important to think of the content of this knowledge. What did they already come to know? They already came to know that their toil was not in vain. Now, there's a, sh a subtle shift that takes place here. In the preceding clause, he talked about work in the Lord. And that work is, is a, the, the word work refers to all kinds of activities. But now he makes a subtle shift, and a, a shift of intensity. He moves from the word, the neutral word work, to the word toil, which is much more intense. Work simply describes activity, whether easy or hard. But the word toil here leaves no ambiguity. It refers to that which is always difficult. The word toil refers, as one commentator said, intense labor united with trouble. It refers to labor unto weariness. So what Paul is saying here is that 
that sometimes the hard work, that hard ground that we have to plow, is particularly a cause for discouragement. It's one thing if our ministry that we do, whatever it is in the church, just kind of happens as normal. It just takes place. Doesn't necessarily come across any obstacles. Doesn't really result in any sadness. And that kind of work can just take place. But, but the kind of work that we do that actually is painful, that's hard, where we really wonder whether there's any impact whatsoever, that that's the, the ground that leads particularly to discouragement. And Paul focuses on that when he uses this word, toil. Your painful labor is not in vain. It's not without purpose or result. It's not without purpose or result. Now, understanding that, now let's come back to that idea of knowledge. How could Paul say that the Corinthians already knew this? Actually, the first chapters of the letter, even up to chapter 9, Paul has regularly indicated this in his letter. Turn for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He's, he's talked there about ministry, and he's... He's instructed the Corinthians in a very important doctrine, and it's the doctrine of reward. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 8. I'll read all the way to the end of verse 14. It's a lengthier section here. Paul says this, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. In chapter 4, verse 5, just a, a short time later, Paul says this, Therefore do not go on, passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden and in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. We could refer to other verses in this letter. Chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, for example, Paul talks about an athletic competition, and how we ought to liken ourselves to runners in the race and race in such a way that we would receive a reward, but not the kind of reward that they would receive in the Greek athletic games, but the kind of reward that's imperishable. So Paul has already referred multiple times to the doctrine of reward and says this is a real thing. Now, we don't often hear about rewards today. I I think what has happened, in light of the fact that we know around us of so many religions 
that are works-based religions, where you work for your salvation, that we tend to swing the pendulum too far and then say the concept of reward is just something that you know, we shouldn't really talk about because it can wrongly motivate people. Even those who are saved, it can wrongly motivate those who are saved to, to start thinking again in terms of rewards. But that's really not biblical. In fact, it's so easy to be given to what's called altruism when we tell ourselves and each other that we should minister for no other reason than that we've been told to minister. And then it gets really hard later on when the soil is tough to keep going. Just just listen to the command. Just listen to the command. God has told you, just do it. And we, we tend to think of obedience and service simply out of a sense of duty. But Scripture, as 1 Corinthians indicates and as other texts indicate, Scripture contains repeated references to reward. Jesus, in Matthew 19, verse 29, encourages his disciples with these words, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Paul has said in the second letter of, of Corinthians, he said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10, to he says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Revelation 22, verse 12, some of the closing words of the Bible indicates this. John records the words of Jesus as saying this, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Now, in all those cases, it's, these verses aren't, aren't contradicting the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. These references to reward is, is in two senses. That if you reject the gospel of grace, if you think that you will get into heaven by putting forward your works, indeed, the Lord will judge you according to your works, and there's no question about it, they will be found lacking. If you reject the gospel of grace, if, if you reject the promise that you can be saved by faith alone, by believing that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins, and that by believing in his name you have eternal life, if you reject that and say, no, I'll do it on my own works, then indeed Jesus is going to come and he will reward you for your works. And let me tell you, let me warn you, that your works are insufficient. They will never get you into paradise. But Paul is also saying, and other biblical writers like, and and Jesus is saying, that for the ones who have embraced the gospel of grace and then start out in in the life of, of conformity to Jesus Christ, living their lives to be pleasing to the one who saved them, that there is reward for the good works done as saved ones. That there is a reward waiting, that God is not a debtor to those who have done for His glory works on His behalf. 
C.S. Lewis, in a sermon entitled The Weight of Glory, put it this way. He says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant and the Stoics and is not part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Paul here is is emphasizing to the Corinthians, listen, be motivated by the reward. Remember what you've been taught. You have come to know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That which you truly do for His glory, to make much of His name, to proclaim His gospel in both public ways and and very quiet ways, that those things done for Him are to be rewarded. He will reward. There will be a payday. So we've seen the broad appeal, the clear command, the generous manner, the rational motivation. that There's truth to, to be grasped, to be remembered in the difficult ministry. But now there's a fifth observation or final one to make from this text. And it's, it's at the very beginning of the, the verse. It's, it's what we'll call a sure foundation. On what basis can we believe this? A sure foundation. Notice the very first word of the verse. Therefore. In other words, what is contained in this text, verse 58, is not to be read in isolation. It's not just like a proverb that can kind of be just thrown out there. No, it is inseparably connected to what has preceded. Now, what has preceded? Look at just verse 57 for a moment. What has preceded? What's the big idea of the preceding context? Verse 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The concept that Paul is is drawing upon as he builds this conclusion is on the concept of victory. Victory. But what is victory? What kind of victory is Paul talking about there in verse 57? Well, that's that's the focus of the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. And what is 1 Corinthians 15 all about? One word. Resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is the greatest chapter on resurrection that you find in the Bible. It is the longest, most concentrated exposition of the doctrine of bodily resurrection. It focuses both on the historicity, the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then flows from that with Him as the first fruits of resurrection to focus on our bodily resurrection. Resurrections. Let me just read even the final seven verses before verse 58, where Paul says this, beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this immortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul essentially saying? Why does he give this exhortation after that extensive exposition of resurrection? And it's this, the reward that awaits us for our ministry is an imperishable one. It is a reward that we will receive for our ministries that is imperishable and is far greater than what could be experienced and received in this life. And here's the problem that we so often face. We want rewards, but in this life, in this time, we want to receive those rewards in our perishable state. So we like perishable rewards. It's strange. In ministry even, we like perishable rewards and often we would settle for some perishable temporal things just to to keep us going and and certainly that isn't wrong but it's when our focus becomes entirely on those perishable rewards and when we don't see them we give up but what Paul is saying here he's saying to the Corinthians and he's saying to us listen the best rewards that you will get for ministry are rewards you just can't handle in this life They are imperishable rewards. They're the best of the rewards. But they can't be enjoyed when you're still in your perishable state. And that's why the resurrection is so important. Listen, all the rewards that Paul is talking about here have not to do with this life. They may come in this life. There may be wonderful fruit that you experience. But Paul's focus here is entirely on the experience of the rewards that come in the future, that come after we have received our imperishable bodies. That's where the reward will truly count. And Paul is encouraging us by saying this, look, it's hard to minister now. The perishable rewards are really not worth much. And they only come here and there. But don't base your steadfastness and immovability on that. Instead, base that steadfastness and immovability in that abundance of ministry, base it on the truth that God has staked upon his very character, that he is faithful. Base it on the truth of the resurrection, that he is going to raise you from the dead someday. He is going to give you an imperishable body to enjoy the best of the reward. It is yet to come. Therefore, as we start a new year, as we start a new year and think of what can I do for the Lord's glory this year, let this wonderful truth motivate you. It is powerful. God will bring reward. You don't need to expect it even in this life. The best is yet to come. I'm reminded of a resolution written by Jonathan Edwards, who was just in his early 
20s or even perhaps this one was still written when he was around 17 or 18 years old. It's Resolution 22 in his resolutions. And at an early age, he resolved himself to this course of action. And I think it's very apropos to what we've just studied. He said this, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all power, might, vigor, and vehemence that I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Beloved, strive for this happiness in the world to come. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given to us these kinds of precious promises. Indeed, as creatures, we're always looking for something of value because we were not created to find it in ourselves. We were, to create, we were created to find it outside of ourselves and ultimately to find it in you. So we pray as we start a new year that you would use that drive, that ambition to find value, to find reward. Use this text in us to give us hope, and motivation and endurance to to find the reward in you that comes from you that is an expression of your glory that will come in the life to come. May you motivate all of us toward that end so that we would not merely have this command to become immovable and steadfast, but that we would be immovable and steadfast and abundant in work in 2024. We ask this for your glory's sake. Amen.